0: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
1: Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry?
0: Hi, it's Stephen. On this week's New Station podcast, we discuss our never-ending lockdown, how devolution is responding to the crisis, and you ask us, how would this have all played out differently if Theresa May was still Prime Minister? So, I mean, I was about to say by the time you listen to this, it actually isn't true for any of our, our listeners, unless you're, you're catching up on this very late. But notionally, it is not yet certain that the lockdown will continue although of course I think anyone who's capable of reading the government's website or indeed paying attention to what the first minister of of Wales says or the health secretary of Wales or indeed any of the devolved governments the extension is going to continue past the end of the Easter weekend and I thought it was an interesting kind of a useful moment for us to kind of stop and talk about you know politics and how it's sort of going in the, the age of social distancing.
1: Hmm. Well it's been a bit of a strange week hasn't it in terms of politics because we've been in, not only been in the sort of confected social distancing limbo which like you say of course is going to be reviewed and then and then continued but also we've been in the limbo of having the Prime Minister remaining in hospital as well which means that the number of or the extent of questions that you know journalists can ask at those press conferences, etc, sort of are limited in terms of that, because, you know, for your reader's sake, or or whoever's sake, you have to ask the sort of obligatory, what can Dom Raab do in this period as the de facto deputy? And what about this scenario? Would, would you be able to carry on the Brexit negotiation talks without Boris Johnson, etc? So it's sort of turned into a bit of a, a week of hypotheticals rather than reality. And like you mentioned, I mean, with the social distancing rules, Mark Drakeford, and we had a good question about devolved governments in the live podcast earlier this week. And again, he's sort of shown that he's ahead in terms of both common sense, but also in terms of communications, because he's being frank with people from the off rather than sort of creating this false suspense or the false sort of deadlines. And actually from covering this whole thing, I don't know if you've found this, but the fact that most of the... The powers of the coronavirus act, like you wrote in your morning call email, Stephen, are devolved. It's sort of highlighted how ahead the devolved, at least Wales and Scotland, have have been ahead of, ahead of Westminster. So a good example of that is is the way that Mark Drakeford did invite the opposition parties to be in his core COVID group before there was any sort of public recognition of of working with other parties in Westminster, for example.
0: I think, you know, when the inevitable inquiries, and I hope it is inquiries, plural, partly because I think there's a lot of different levels of, of things going on, mm-hmm. is then I feel that the one of the things that they have been a lot better at is A, kind of bringing, bringing in the other parties, and B, kind of just communicating what is going to happen. Although I think the open question is, to what extent is this a fault of us in the media and what extent is this a fault of us in the government? Because it is obvious if you look at what the objective of the lockdowns is, which is to reduce the rate of transmissibility to below one, and then that flattens the curve. And then after, at the end of that, you can kind of see whether or not it's working, whether or not you can extend it. Now, we can't say for certain when that will be, but we can say for certain that it will not be this week. I think although all of the, developed, all of the governments have, have got different things wrong, I think that specifically the government in London has been very poor at communication. And I think that that's been made more acute because now that the Prime Minister is sick, they're very aware that the press conferences are not working as they would like them to and that they are aware that their communication needs to improve. But of course... Even if they're aware of something and something's been signed off, there's a strong feeling that it's one thing for Boris Johnson to go, no, we're changing this and quite another for Dominic Raab to go, no, we're changing it, even if he is actually just literally pulling off a completed folder down from the you know, the kind of from the handover note, as it were.
2: And in either case, as you've wrote written, Stephen, there's there's not going to be any change. I, I think it's partly a, a consequence of print media, right? in that you need a new line every day. You can't have the same splash as the day before, can you?
0: Yeah, the person I think has actually really was very fortunate this week was Rishi Sunak, right, who announced a package to support charities, seven seven uh, 750 million, which I know is obviously an unimaginable sum of money to, well, if it's not an unimaginable sum of money to everyone listening <laughs> to this podcast, please send me some. But it's an unimaginable sum to, you know, a household, but it's peanuts in a in terms of government spending but also as peanuts in terms of the four billion shortfall this quarter than charities will face and he announced it i know there was some nervousness in the treasury and they were concerned that they were going to have to answer difficult questions not least the thing that they had identified was and they thought they might have a political problem that they have done no, they have consciously chosen not to do anything for private schools, which think that they are going to struggle who because they are nominally charities, so they can't access all of the rent support, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But there was not a single question about this announcement. And it was all, as you say, Patrick, this kind of slight weirdness, just like, when, when, what will happen with this review? What if aliens invade? Can Dominic Rob? can he lead first contact? And it's just... This slight weirdness, where I think it a means that the government gets off the hook a bit, but also
2: does confuse people unnecessarily. My favorite, yeah, my favorite was does Dominic uh, Dominic Rob have the power to? And they said Dominic Grieve, then he definitely doesn't have the power to hire and fire ministers. But does Dominic Rob have the power to hire and fire ministers? Like, what in what universe <laughs> is that Someone going to be planning a sweeping reshuffle <laughs> at this point, or indeed, why would why would anybody resign at this point? <laughs> Yeah, it's just yeah, it is
0: one of those things where, like, in the event of war, it's just like okay, so which socially distancing army from another country do we <laughs> envisage?
2: Yeah, you know, like yeah, you know, like at the point you know, when when even the so-called Islamic State has stood down its people because of because of COVID and is doing social distancing itself, you know, I'm not ruling out the chance of anything bad happening, but it's sort of I don't really understand why that's at the top of anybody's agenda right now. <laughs> Yeah,
0: I do also love the idea that that Boris Johnson, you know, comes back, you know, in eighteen days, you know, like you know he's he's recovered and he's just like, oh, um, Dom, have you done anything? Where, where's Liz Truss gone? And Dom just trying to style it out, just like, uh, no, uh, it's it's the same cabinet it was, mate. Um, yeah, it happens sometimes. I, I felt a bit woozy after, you know, I had a, a big flu. But yeah, it's just the whole the whole hypothetical is 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 just visibly insane. Anush. On the subject of other things that the government has, has sort of tried but has not yet fully cleaned up, you did an a sort of investigation this week into the world of second homers. These are the people who have fled London to, you know, shack up in the Cotswolds or something to avoid infection. Uh, what's going on with that?
1: Yeah, well, um, I thought it was an interesting subject, mainly the hook being what happened in Scotland with their chief medical officer who was found going to her second home two weekends in a row in Fife where when she lives in Edinburgh. And actually looking into it, we, we found so many more different stories. Apparently, this is still happening a lot. People are still driving from cities to their second homes in more rural areas. And, at the, and because now they know that it's the wrong thing to do, whereas maybe at the beginning when people said unnecessary travel, you know, try and avoid it, it, may, it might have been ambiguous. You might have been able to argue that you weren't sure whether you're allowed. Now people know that they're not allowed. They're going in the dead of night. So I was speaking to a couple of MPs about this who represent Dorset and Devon constituencies, and they were saying we literally, you know, the roads are empty in the day, and then it gets to eleven pm, and there's traffic jams of people coming and and sort of pretend, and then the next morning, sort of pretending that they've been there all along, but self isolating in their in their second home So there were some quite amusing stories, but of course it's not that funny because as the data that we collated shows most of the second home hotspots in England have had their health budgets cut significantly in the last three years, over 10%, lots of them. And so, locals are really worried because they've got fewer hospital beds. They've often had hospital closures or at least closures of AE departments and and vital services in their hospitals and moved to the to the big hospitals in the bigger cities. So they've got a longer way to travel for their healthcare. But also they've found that their pharmacies are running out of the medication that they need because there's so many more people now coming asking for medicine, but also having their sort of repeat prescriptions fulfilled in a different area. And that's sort of putting a bureaucratic burden on, on pharmacies as well, which are often the linchpin of, of healthcare in rural areas and small towns and villages. So some of the stuff that we found was really shocking. And what what surprises me is that there's so little focus on that as opposed to the focus on the number of Londoners who had the audacity to go to parks last weekend. It's sort of the flip side, isn't it? Okay, maybe it's maybe some of them weren't obeying the laws to the letter, In London but lots of them will be living in flats without gardens or terraces or balconies then on the flip side you have people who have a second property who are recklessly going and moving in and and I don't feel apart from what happened in Scotland which was a very high profile case I don't feel there's been as much sort of focus on on that which again it's just it just highlights another one of the inequalities that's been exposed by this crisis.
0: Yeah I think because yeah, as you say, like a teeny tiny minority of people in parks and cities are breaking the rules, whereas a hundred percent of people who have moved to their second home, <laughs> yeah. Are, are, yeah, are are breaking the guidelines, right? But I think it's well. Actually, I was going to say it's a reflection of people in the media. Except the 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 thing that is really blowing my mind about the fact that and this will happen this weekend, right? Is yeah, every weekend a large chunk of the media takes to Twitter to to advocate that we all be locked in our flats, is then it's being generated by people who must know it's untrue, as it were.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, someone said, I can't remember who it was, but someone tweeted, you know, if you're going to shame people for being in parks over the Easter weekend, you also have to attach a floor plan of your of your home as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, because I think it is one of those those things. That, well, I think, you yeah, know, obviously there are downsides to this, but one of the things I'm finding maddening at the moment actually is that for all you know, obviously we have many criticisms of the government's approach and we've discussed them already this week. But one of the things that the government is doing well is actually is providing quite a lot of data and the death stats are being and being presented in this way. If we cover if we covered an election like some outlets are covering the death straps, it would be like someone's like, "Oh, the exit poll says it's a hung parliament, but Labour have just won Islington North with 75% of the vote, so maybe the Tories will only have 10 MPs when this is over." Oh no, Surrey Heath has declared, maybe like <laughs> Labour will be reduced to 15% of the vote. It's like, "Guys, this is this this is not a helpful way of 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 reporting a single day's figures. Just report the number explain what the graph means and it's particularly crazy when you have like journalists tweeting like this shows it's flattening while showing while sharing a government graph that very much does not show flattening and yeah. it's the same with like the selfish londoners narratives and i feel like every day they do a chart going here's our chart showing that people are the vast majority of people are following yeah. the rules <laughs> and they need you to keep doing so and then like someone's like if people keep violating the rules you might have to just like most people aren't violating like I'm also deeply concerned that if I if I do get locked in my flat it will actually end in me murdering another journalist because I I honestly do feel if I end up shut in without being able to go out to get some sunshine for a for a walk for 30 minutes because a bunch of other people have decided that a good way to get clicks is to like do long lens photos of of parks, I I I I'm really concerned that, that bad things will happen.
2: You speak as if that sentiment about wanting to kill other journalists is a new thing, Stephen. Um, <laughs> but the the interesting thing for me, actually, to pick up something you said about covering death figures like their polling is the actual polling that's been done, especially the um, the Welsh political barometer poll. Given that you know, to pick up what we said at the very start of this segment about Wales and uh, how differently the government have handled it there or indeed the dif- differences in their communication strategy. The Welsh Political Barometer poll dropped today, had the Tories north of 40%. Of the vote would be the large party in the Assembly and would also finish way in front of Labour in a Westminster election. I remember my first reaction was like, oh my God, they've lost Torvine. God, this is this is nuts. And I tweeted something to that effect. I was like, "God, poor Nick Thomas Simmons. And then you pause for five seconds and think, hang on, what use is a poll taken in the middle of a pandemic mm. to anybody at this point. But I think, actually, you raise a, an interesting point on Twitter, Stephen, that it tells us that as much as there is a difference in Wales in terms of the response to this, people aren't necessarily rallying around their own... Go- that's not the flag they're rallying around.
0: Yeah, I think... You know, I don't want to belittle particularly things. I know some of the people who listen to this are, are Labour MPs who would lose their seats and the thing. I don't want to belittle the, the scariness of that poll from a Labour perspective. But one, like, ultimately we're not going to have an election during lockdown and predicting the politics of the world after lockdown. is just like, well, you know, really what's the point? But the party who I think that is a genuinely worrying poll for is Plaid Kumri, right? Because their whole political argument, right? The, The success of the SNP is shown in the fact that there is a rallying towards their government, even among people who don't vote for the SNP, right? They have, Successfully created/slash benefited from a pre-existing distinct Scottish polity, and I think they've done a bit of creating and a bit of benefiting from its pre existent state. Whereas the fact that you still have a situation where, and okay, I think the difference between the two polls does show that a good-sized chunk of of the Welsh polity does view itself as different. But I think it's fascinating that you know, twenty years after devolution. A process in which Plaid did better in that first set of devolved elections than the SNP did. The kind of three Wales, so broadly a kind of a British Wales, which it sees itself as Welsh, but only in the same sense I see myself as a Londoner. Right? It's a, it's an important but but part of a wider national identity. A distinct Welsh Wales, and then a post-industrial American Wales. Not obviously not full of American, but a sort of post-industrial Wales. And I think what's striking about that is it shows that twenty years after devolution have not successfully increased the size of Welsh Wales beyond a fairly limited coalition of Welsh language speakers and creatives, right, the type of people who in Wales do also vote for the Green Party but would vote green elsewhere.
2: And obviously then you had the period where Leanne Wood tried to merge Welsh Wales with left Wales, I guess, or post-New Labour Wales, and that didn't work either. That's a problem which is not going to go away, right,
0: whereas I think... The rallying around the incumbent government, whether you are a Scottish Conservative or an English member of the Labour Party or a Welsh member of the Labour Party, the rallying around the Conservative government in London or the Scottish government in Edinburgh, is—it's is, it takes care of itself, right? We don't know what the it taking care of itself political period afterwards will look like. Mm. Whereas I think, yeah, the existential challenge of why are they rallying to that flag and not that flag, I don't think does go away.
2: So the interesting the interesting question for me, and this isn't necessarily on the COVID question. It's actually, I guess, my question to to you, Stephen, is why do you think that is? Because obviously, in in Scotland, Labour really, you know, hammed up the idea of a separate Scottish party. Right? You had the the fighting fifty Scottish Labour MPs in eighty seven, was it? And then you had a really, you know, the the, uh, the Scottish party was always devolutionist. And I guess, obviously, Welsh Labour came to that a bit later, and there was sort of less consensus on it, but. You still have; they've still been banging. They've still depended on, that. and you, you can argue some of the success in recent years have has depended on the idea of a separate Welsh political consciousness. So, would you, would you say they're just on different timelines, or are we comparing apples and oranges, or, or what? So, I think it's a combination of things. I
0: think one. So, I, I think one of the things that the Welsh Labour Party had very effect, has done very effectively is it has robbed Plaid of some of its distinctiveness through its continued assertion of its Welshness. But I also think, right, like. Ultimately, Scotland has a separate legal system, separate school system, separate system. it just does have clearer delineation. And also, crucially, its actual capital is also its economic capital mm. for the whole of Scotland, right? Whereas in the twenty fifteen general election, in the Welsh leaders' debate, the moment for me that really stood out was when Leanne would said, Look, what good does it do for Wales to make it easier for people to travel in chest to Chester? And you could kind of feel the audience just being like, Well, Obviously, that is to our benefit because that is the economic capital for a large chunk of Wales. I think ultimately, like, you know, politics is downstream from culture, but it's also downstream from economics, right? And the fact that there are closer economic ties, yeah, you, know, you asked me, and you know, I, I thought something. John Morris, who was Attorney General throughout Labour's time in opposition, served in the cabinets of Wilson, Callaghan, and Blair as a result of that. And yeah, the sort of last com- lunch I had with a politician before lockdown, it turned out was with him. And one of the things he kind of said to me, which is really stuck in my mind, is um, he said, you've got to remember I'm from a conquered nation. Yeah, he was saying it in a half-joking way. But I do think that is the kind of crucial difference, right, than a union forged by a merger of crowns. Is going to leave two more distinct polities. A union forged by conquest and a prolonged period of you know, prohibited language, etc., etc., is always going to make it harder afterwards to assert itself, assert itself separately. And I've always kind of believed that one of the weird advantages the SNP has is that it's much easier for Scottish political identity to be inclusive precisely Mm. because it doesn't actually have the same foundational grievance as Welsh Nationalism. Mm.
1: And now's the time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Thank you. <laughs> so, Stephen, you had a question from a Morning Call subscriber.
0: Yep. And yes, and just to reiterate, there are multiple... Well, the best way to, to ask a question is via the Google form, which will be my pinned tweet by the time that this comes out. And it would be helpful if my outlook hadn't just crashed. Imagine for a moment that this crisis was happening, not in January, February, March of 2020, but in 2019, Theresa May, not quite at the absolute nadir of her powers, but close to it, would things have been different, I guess? And how would they have been different?
1: I mean, what the hugest difference would have been that it was happening with the backdrop of Brexit not done, uh, to use the uh, popular phrase. So I suppose that would have been the the, the there have been a few questions this week about what's going to what's going to happen with Brexit. Is it going to be delayed, etc.? But, you know, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, could say, stand up and say at the, at the press conference, well, you know, we have left the European Union. Theresa May wouldn't have been able to say that back then. So I think that probably would have been one of the, the bigger stories which hasn't really dominated the narrative this time round. And I suppose, you know, depending on how bad things were, it would have been quite a good excuse to to delay things or do things differently, or negotiate differently. I suppose it could have helped her in a sense.
2: Yeah, I, it's it's tricky, isn't it? The sort of facetious answer I have is that had this happened a year ago, every journalist would be in a re-education camp on the Isle of Man because Theresa May would have still had, still be exercising her emergency powers. But I don't know, it, it, because her standing in, in April was so, I mean, we were sort of getting into the cross-party talks period now. The feeling inside the Tory Party was so febrile at that point. I wonder whether does she survive? I mean, it's an interesting question. Or does the does the PLP assert itself? I mean, not that the PLP ever asserted itself, or could assert itself. But at that point, did the PLP you know reach for the lever with the label Margaret Beckett on it, and then say, "Come on, let's let's work something out. Let's have a COVID government." I don't, I don't know. Is the is the short answer? But I don't know. Something in my gut tells me Theresa May. So it, so in my gut tells me that Theresa May doesn't come out of it well, but also what was Theresa May for? What did Conservative MPs vote Theresa May in for if not to steady the ship at a moment like that? I just wonder if in the heads of Tory MPs, the distrust to, towards Theresa May is that great over Brexit. She's a selling, well, she's not even a selling share at that point. She's a, she's, a, she's a junk bond politically. I wonder whether at that point Tory MPs go, no, come on, you know, she's not the person to leave us through this. Or conversely, do they then get behind her because it's such a grave crisis? My instinct, right, is what was
0: the kind of peak of Theresa May's post-2017 power? Now, obviously, that is peak with the, you know, with the obvious caveat of the word post-2017. It was during the attack on the Scripples, right, which essentially allowed her to return to her kind of core home office crisis managed Mm. stuff. And I suspect that a similar dynamic would have played itself out. I agree with your half joke that... Theresa May, I think, you know, her kind of securocrat leanings would have meant that we would have locked down faster. Uh, there's a very good Reuters piece about, you know, what the scientific advice said and, you know, how, how that ended up with where it, but I think, I think there were lots of reasons why the United Kingdom, you know, why all, all of the devolved governments pursued a position that was supported by a minority of scientists around the world for, I mean, I would say for so long, for not that long in, in sort of relative terms, but for quite long in terms of the lifespan of, of the disease. I do think one of the reasons why isn't you had a Downing Street, which was reluctant and still is a bit right. That is one of the problems with the whole kind, like one of the reasons why a large chunk of the media is going, could we be out in a week? is because the government is reluctant to go, actually, bad news, guys, you're going to be living like this for a indefinite period. We can explain what the exit route is, but we can't be certain when the exit route, when the exit will actually arrive. I think then, because May would have been much more inclined to go, well, they've locked down there. I'm going to lock down here because I am a pro lockdown type politician. I suspect that the UK would have come into line sooner rather than it, it being one of that minority of countries of which Sweden is now really the only uh, country left standing, rather than being in that group for, for some time. The flip side, though, is that... So I guess I kind of agree with the and it would have strengthened her. Like, the thing that this has exposed, right, is that the model of Brexit that you would be able to do if you left the customs union, which I have written about, you know, not entirely unsympathetically, to make the economics work is you basically go... Well, we just won't have much of a British farming industry. And that allows you to strike a trade deal with the US, a trade deal with the EU, a trade deal with Japan, and you just become even more of a net importer of food. I don't think that that is going to be
2: a sustainable political position
1: mm-hmm. now. Yeah, after that, yeah.
2: Just to return to the Westminster politics just very briefly, what do you think it would have meant for the politics of the Labour Party at that point, given that, as you said, April, the PLP is odds over lots of things the people who eventually split start to assert themselves over a foreign policy obviously Brexit uh, is causing massive eruptions at that point do you think it might galvanize the PLP at that point to do anything or do you think they just have run a little bit louder and from the comfort of their own constituency homes
1: you can almost imagine it playing out in a similar way to to the way that Brexit was playing out in that there would be even more rancor and um anger in the party at the fact that their leader wasn't wasn't a strong enough opposition leader, you know, to meet the challenge of of this generation's greatest crisis. There was so much language like that, and so much feeling around that during Brexit. And this is sort of that times 100. So yeah, I imagine that it probably would have accelerated the splits. I also think like one
0: of the radicalising factors in Labour politics, than in Labour parliamentary politics and is kind of underrated is WhatsApp. You had various support groups of people who couldn't stand it who essentially all decided to leave. Now that was partly about physical socialising, but it was also about social media socialising. But because basically right, the, the choice before you if you're a Corbyn skeptic in the Labour Party is you either split or you convince. And Keir obviously successfully did the convincing part and the change people split. And I would argue did successfully change the politics of the European stuff. But you then had a kind of middle ground of people who basically were just like, I'm going to be loud loud and quite unpleasant in a way that doesn't actually advance my aims at all. And I think one of the things which fueled that was people who were angry about the political situation, WhatsApping each other and kind of amping each other up. Mm. And I suspect that one of the consequences of social distancing at that point is it would have just sort of driven that stuff further the question is would that have would that have been the push right because obviously like the the biggest single political failing of Labour politics in that period was that group of Labour MPs who wanted Theresa May's Brexit to happen
1: Mm.
0: didn't vote for it most of them did end up voting for Boris Johnson's Brexit deal and then they lost their seat in the election. Now, the question I have is, would, would this event, have, and because there would have been this kind of like, okay, what's going to happen around Brexit? And I think that what's going to happen around Brexit would have definitely increased this sense of there's a deal on the table. It's take it or we indefinitely extend until we leave. I think that would have it strengthened the hand of the Michael Gove argument, right, which was basically like, guys, just just vote for the exit terms. We'll sign hundreds of trade agreements with the EU over the life of our time outside of it. We can fix things we don't like about this later on in trade talks. I think that group would have been strengthened and I think if anything was going to push that kind of like Gareth Snell, Lisa Nandy group into actually voting for it surely it would have been this mm. moment of you have to decide right now because the problem that that group never had is they never were really forced to decide they were there was always a moment when they
2: could say they were they were, they could always be willing to vote for something also i mean a really big watershed in terms of labours movement on the European question, as well as Change UK with the European election results, after which Corbyn said, for the first time, we now support a second referendum in any circumstances. Up until then, Labour's policy had been a second referendum to prevent a damaging Tory Brexit. At that point, their policy was just, we are the party of a second referendum. But given that the European elections would have been postponed, surely that sub- significantly chills that it doesn't escalate divisions in both parties in that way. It's not an existential defeat for the Conservative Party. There's no incentive for them to reach for uh, the button Mark Boris at that point because Farage hasn't annihilated them at the polls. And ditto Labour isn't, or rather uh, Lotto, aren't pushed into a second referendum position because they're, they've they paid no electoral d- demonstrable electoral penalty. Sure, maybe the Lib Dems are still riding high in the polls, but does that give everyone a bit more time and space? And indeed, when, you, in the form of a deal on the table and the urgency in terms of the pandemic to, to get the other big policy question off the table, does that just allows everyone to chill out and see the question anew?
1: I really wish, I, I wish that it had in this hypothetical universe, but just remembering what the atmosphere was like back then, I do feel like coronavirus would have just been an excuse for everyone to advance their different stances, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this has happened, let's not do Brexit for the Remainer or second referendum kind of contingent. Or this has happened, how on earth can we accept this deal that would sign our powers away to the EU that are coping with the virus so badly from the Eurosceptics, for example. And then for Theresa May and everyone who wanted um, the MPs to vote through the deal, this has happened, just vote through the deal that's on the table so that we can concentrate on this, which is far more pressing. (laughs) you can imagine it sort of dividing everyone even more and sort of intensifying the gridlock.
0: Yeah, I I mean, also and also, everyone was so exhausted and that was one of the reasons why they were making such bad decisions. Mm. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think this thing isn't, I guess the answer is it would have been worse. But I do think, because they weren't that far away from a majority for Theresa May's deal, right? Like in the, the third meaningful vote, They'd already scared most of the Brexiteers over the over the line because of the the fear that they'd lose Brexit. The only thing they needed was for the Labour MPs who wanted to vote for a deal to you know vote for a deal. But I guess this is and it comes back to Patrick's question about would the PLP have acted at some point? Is what do you what do we think the PLP's inaction was really about? Was it about? two conflicting electoral pressures which they couldn't reconcile was it as one Labour MP suggested to me the reason why they think that they shouldn't do it is because the the reason why they haven't done it is they know consciously that they shouldn't do it or was it that ultimately the thing that unifies basically all Labour MPs both then and now is why were you still a Labour MP at this point in 2019 because your attachment to the Labour Party was very strong and I think that for me is why I don't really buy the sort of Margaret Beckett unity government hypothetical. You've been listening to the New States and Podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleague Anusha Kelly and our political correspondent, Patrick Maguire. Alva Ray is enjoying the delights of a socially distancing holiday in her own flat, uh, but we will be back with us next week. Our music is Devil by the Devil. We're recorded and produced by Nick Hilton. If you're enjoying the New Statesman podcast, please do give us a favourable review on your pod provider of choice. And if you can, please do consider subscribing to the New Statesman.